Okay, so what is it? It's Matthew. It's Matthew 27 from verse 51 and following, isn't it? Okay, um, it, it would appear that unless something really peculiar happens, unless something really strange happens, that this is the last time that I will preach um, as the minister here at London City Presbyterian Church, the last time that this will happen. Um, so we'll be around for a couple of weeks, and um, I will take the evening Zoom call, which at this precise moment I realized I did not <laughs> plug earlier on. So I'm getting an opportunity to do that. So tonight, half past six. So I'll take that Zoom call tonight. But as far as preaching proper is concerned, then uh, this is it. So maybe you can perhaps, um, if you put yourselves in my shoes, maybe you can um, understand or imagine the difficulty in choosing a text of Scripture uh, this morning. Do, do you see it? It would have been folly for me to continue in numbers, don't you think? I think it would have been. That was my natural inclination, you know, sequential, expository preaching, keep going in numbers. But we were about to enter a new section of the book of Numbers. Uh, so it would, have been, it would have been a strange thing for a minister to do in his last sermon to begin a new section of a book. So that leaves me with a question as I wrestle with God in prayer. What to do? Where to go for the last sermon? Well, I do hope um, that you understand that over the past eight and a half, nine years, um, as poorly as maybe it has been done, the, the intention each Lord's Day, the intention has to be has been to preach Christ and to preach Christ crucified. So I thought it would make sense that on this, the last day of my ministry here, that we go there again together. Right, you see it? Doesn't it make sense for us in a more deliberate and obvious way this morning to consider the cross at Calvary, to go there and to gaze upon this most unique of persons dying there, this most unique of deaths? So we go to the cross, but more specifically, more exactly, what we're going to do just now in this sermon is we are going to consider two occurrences, two events that accompany the very almost last breath of Jesus Christ on the cross. Two events, you with me? But two events that shed so much light for us on the question of why it was that the Son of God would die a cursed death. So two events that accompany Jesus' death. So, for the last time, I need to urge you to make sure you've got the Bible, you've got that text of Scripture in front of you there as we consider the first of these events, and that is the rending of the veil. That's the first thing I want us to think about this morning, the rending of the veil. Okay, now, it's pretty obvious what I mean by the rending of the veil, isn't it? Like we're thinking about the, the curtain, the destruction of this, this curtain in the temple, but how are we going to do it? You know, are we going to go for some fancy alliteration or, or, you know, are we going to go word by word? How are we going to work? How are we going to think about the curtain? What we're going to do is we're going to pose an answer 
just one or two questions about this veil that we're reading about in God's Word. Okay, so the, you know it's not the first time we've done this, right? But we'll we'll think about some questions and try and answer them just now. So here's the first one. You'll stick with me for the first one, at least I'm sure. Here it is. Which curtain are we dealing with? Now, maybe immediately, if you know Scripture, maybe immediately you realize why we've got to ask that question. Like by now we know, don't we? I think everyone in here would know roughly the sort of makeup and the construction of the temple. So we know that there were two curtains in this temple in Jerusalem. Do we know that? We know that, don't we? I think so. I'll I'll talk you through it. So there was one that separated what was the outer courtyard. So that's where the people could go. You know, all the Jews could go in the outer courtyard. And there was a curtain that separated that from what was called the holy place. And that's where the priests did a lot of the work. So you're you're with me, right? So you've got outer courtyard, veil, big, massive curtain, holy place. That's the first one. But then you've got a second curtain. Follow me. Second curtain that separated the holy place from what was called the most holy place. And we know what we're talking about there, don't we? We know it's the inner room, isn't it? It's the inner room of the the temple, the, the, the presence of God there, the ark there, the place where, wait for it, only one man was allowed to go, that, the high priest, and he was he was only allowed to go there one day in the whole calendar, one day on the, the day of atonement. So you got it? So you've got outer courtyard, veil, holy place, veil, most holy place. So you see the question? Matthew tells us that a curtain was destroyed. Which curtain is it? Well, despite all the arguments that go on about this, I think the answer to that question is really pretty clear. So I want you to listen to it. Here, Matthew is speaking about the inner curtain. The one that hung on these golden hooks in front of the most holy place. That's what you are focusing on this morning, at this point here. Now, I'm being pretty sure about that, right? I'd be pretty clear and adamant about that. How, how am I allowed to do that? It's, it's, it's really quite obvious. Do you know why? How can I say it with such certainty? Because the Bible tells us. So if you go later on in, in, in the New Testament, you come to the book of the Hebrews, book Hebrews, the author of Hebrews makes it really clear when you le- read that book that what is in focus here is access to that inner, inner room, access to the holy holies, the most holy place. So what are you thinking about just now? You have to think with me before God about that veil before the most holy place. Question one, which curtain? Okay, will we move on? Secondly, what did that curtain look like? What did it look like? And maybe if you've been generous, do you see why we've got to ask that? Like, I suppose it depends what you've got in front of you, friends. Like, uh, even the people at home, like, what, what does it say in the translation that you've got in front of you here? Because we're going to have, most of us are going to have different translations at this point, because they do vary quite a lot. So some of you have got a curtain that tears. Some of you have got a veil that is rent or torn. Okay, some of you have got that. Certainly people at home will have that. I've got a bit of a problem with, with that sort of language. And it's maybe just me, although it would be really weird if it was just me. 
Because what, what do you think of when you think of a veil? You know, you're walking down the street and you hear people talking about a veil. Hopefully it isn't just me because this will be really strange if it is just me. But I tend to think about a bride's face covering, right? The veil or at a funeral or something. Maybe the, the, the woman who is in mourning. She'll wear, it's, it's not just me, right? Not just me that's thinking about weddings there. We, we think about that when we hear the word veil, don't we? Now, what is that veil like? That veil at a wedding, you know, it's see-through and it's a bit thin, it's transparent, it's um, made of lace or, or something like that, isn't it? Now you have to, do you see the problem? You have to understand that here in Matthew, it's the opposite idea. Not something transparent, not something thin. You, you've got to appreciate, if you're going to understand this at all, this veil was incredibly thick. Like we're talking, honestly, this, the span of a big hand, thick. Like you've got to think about the dimensions of this curtain for me. So we're talking like 20 to 30 feet wide and stretching up to the ceiling here. Like it's, did you see like what? Like this is, this is, this is massive. And I need you to appreciate well the color. Because what the Jews did, they used the finest of, of, of cloth, the finest of yarn to produce the colors of royalty. Indeed, they produce the colors of divinity. So it's scarlet, it's purple and red, this whole thing. Do you see? It's massive. It's, it's, it's bright. But as you're picturing that just now, what are you thinking? Maybe it's a bit bland. Maybe even though it's a bit colorful. No. Most of all, you need to appreciate the intricate detail of this curtain. Now you stick with me here. What we learn elsewhere in the Bible is that the most beautiful, intricate tapestries were adorned this, 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 this massive, this massive veil, this massive curtain. So embroidery patterns of angelic beings, but more precisely tapestries of cherubim on this glorious, this beautiful curtain. Now, doesn't that change things? Like, what do you think? You look at this, it's, it's, it's remarkable. It's a startling thing, both in color, diameter, and intricacy. So, we get the idea. We're dealing with the, which curtain it is, like, what, what does it look like? But I think everyone in the room and everyone at home, you all picked up, as I read that, you picked up on what happened to this curtain, did you? This curtain is destroyed. Jesus breathes his last on that cross and the ground shakes. There's an earthquake and this veil is destroyed. And so it's obvious to say that the third question is the most critical, isn't it? Why? There's no one in the room who doesn't see that this is a symbolic moment. But what's the symbolism? What does this signify? Well, I want to give you two answers to that question. But for the first, I want to ask you to try and imagine what it is like in our house (laughs) at the moment. All right? You've got to try and imagine what it's like at our house in the manse at the moment. You've all moved house, right? You you remember what it's like? Right, throw into the mix, homeschooling. (laughs) You remember? 
Imaginable. That's like chaos, okay? And we are, uh, the thing that's striking me at the moment is just the amount of paperwork that's done when you're moving house, all the changes that have to make, all the paperwork. So, you know, we're going into cupboards and we're going into drawers and trying to deal with all this paperwork. This week, um, I came across, as I was going through some of the stuff in the study, I came across an insurance document for a computer that I own. But it's a computer that is completely broken. It's, you know, it's kaput. It's, it's completely dead. We're going to smash it. It's going to go in the bin. And the insurance document had expired, I don't know how, probably a decade ago. Okay, so my question to you is, what would you do with that insurance document? Because some of you are really organized, and maybe you would have a filing cabinet for expired insurance documents, okay? I'm not that organized at all in any way, shape, or form. I maybe would love to be. But the computer is broken. So that insurance document is, is obsolete as far as I'm concerned, right? It's completely redundant. Even if the computer, even if it covered, the, the computer's broke, it's gone, right? So what do I do? I'm ripping it up, okay? I'm not filing it away. I'm, I'm ripping up that document, and I need you to appreciate that that is what is happening here. Now, do you? Did you not pick up on the, 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 the type of language that Matthew uses? Did you not notice how passive the language is here? Now, what is said of this veil of this, this curtain? Did it tear? It was torn. And did you notice the detail, the direction? This was torn, was torn from top to bottom. Do you not see? Matthew is almost portraying to you a divine hand that enters the scene and tears up this veil. And so you ask, don't you? Or certainly I ask, so what is obsolete? That this has been torn. What is redundant? And if you hear nothing else, you hear this. This curtain tore because at Jesus' death, the pattern of temple worship was being forever abrogated. Did you hear those words? The curtain tore because at Jesus' death, the sacrificial system in its entirety was being here at Calvary forever rendered null and void. And I reckon you see it, don't you? Don't you? Like for so long, the people of Israel had been involved in this really detailed ceremonial system. I really wonder if the modern mind, if we really grasp what it was like, do we? Like millions of animals slaughtered over the years. Like you, 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 can we begin to imagine the scale, the volume of blood? And this day in, day out, day in, day out pattern of priestly worship for, for years, for decades, for centuries. And what do we know? We know that all of it was anticipatory, don't we? We know that all of this was looking ahead to the moment where one, one true priest would act and he would offer one sufficient sacrifice for sin. And then what do we see as we look to Calvary on Good Friday? What do we know that is occurring there at Golgotha? We know there at last the great high priest, he acts at the cross. And what does he do? He offers himself. He offers the Lamb of God for the sins of his people. Don't, don't you see at the cross, the ceremonial law was being forever fulfilled. And so what does God do? You think I'm a computer. 
The temple is obsolete. It's redundant. What does God do? He enters the scene and he rips up the veil. But I said two meanings as to why the symbolism here. And for this one, I, I would ask you most sincerely to, to come with me and enter the temple. Come with me in the moments before Jesus Christ has, has died, before he is crucified, come into the temple. And my question for you, as you stand before the veil, what do you see? What strikes you as you imagine it? Is it the diameter? Is it the size? Is it the scale of it? Is the color of it? You see with your eyes the embroidery of the cherubim. And I need us to think about the function of, of the cherubim. You see, this week, um, or last week it was actually, uh, Catherine and I were on a Zoom call. We were on a Zoom call to some of the people who um, have recently joined the stewarding rota in the church. Do we know what we're talking about there? It's sort of like door duty, but it's, it's a practical job moving seats, uh, moving people, shepherding them out of the building, right? The stewarding rota setting up barriers, practical role. But Catherine and I were having a laugh with the people on the stewarding rota. The idea <laughs> uh, that they could take that stewarding rota too seriously, you know? <laughs> the idea that they would view it as being bouncers, you know? So it's like, you're not getting into church, <laughs> you're wearing trainers. You know, you're, you're not getting into church, uh, you're wearing jeans. And we're laughing at how utterly ludicrous uh, that would would be. Do you not see, though? that in a very real and more serious way, that was the function of the cherubim as shown to you in Scripture. You get that, do you? If you go back to the Garden of Eden, what do you see in Eden? That God had walked, hadn't he, with Adam. That that Adam had enjoyed even the direct presence of God, but Adam falls into sin. You all know the story. Adam is expelled from Eden, but what does God do at that point? You all could tell me, couldn't you? God establishes cherubim at the east of Eden to bar way back to the tree of life. Cherubim, a flaming sword to blockade the route back to the direct presence of God. And so isn't this a most remarkable thing for you to ponder and consider in Matthew chapter 27? Think about what happens here. The Lord Jesus Christ, having done what Adam could not do, he has fulfilled all righteousness. What does Christ go on to do? He bears sin and death. And at this moment, that veil that you're picturing... That one adorned with the cherubim, the angelic beings, at the moment of Christ's death, that splits, it is rented to, it is utterly destroyed. Do you see? Christ's death opened up a new path to the direct presence of the Almighty God. Do you see at Golgotha what happened? The gates to God's presence were flung open. Spiritually speaking, listen to me, as Christ breathed his last breath on that cross and hung his head in death, you understand that those cherubim were disarmed. 
You understand that as Christ died at that very moment, the flaming sword was put down, that now access to the Almighty God was available to to all people, but in and through Jesus Christ and Him alone. Isn't that a marvelous event? The veil was rent. Why? Why? Yes, because temple worship was redundant. But also because in Christ Jesus and through his death, a new and living way has opened up to the God of all grace. And surely the application of this is just so, so simple. Like first for the Christian in here. You understand, you've seen it. God has shown you what happens. Christ Jesus has, has gone in, he's crossed the threshold, and he beckons, beckons people to himself. And so I ask you, as a Christian, are you at this point in your life going to God? I mean, you know what the, the, the book of Hebrews says at this point, do you? The author of the Hebrews, he talks about this moment and access. He talks about this, but then he issues you a command. There's an imperative, not to everyone, but to the church. And he says to you, the veil is gone, the veil is down, the curtain is torn. And he commands you, so you draw near to God. So Christian friend, is that what's happening just now? Is this a time where there's a great lack of prayer in your life? Is it a time, is it a season for you where spiritual disciplines are non-existent? Or are you, Christian friend, boldly approaching the throne of grace by the blood of Jesus Christ? There's application for the Christian, but then more obviously, surely there is application for those who do not believe. And maybe if you're not a Christian listening on, maybe you see what it is. I say to you, if you're not a Christian, it is Christ who is the true temple. It is Christ who is the real temple, the the place where God and man meet. And Christ has made the way clear. Don't you? Don't you see what you must do? Even at this hour, in this church service, surely it's the time to call out to Jesus Christ to cross the threshold and go to God. So we see the first of these two events, the rending of the veil. The second event, so I said two events, didn't I, that accompany the very death of Christ. The second is uh, the raising of the saints. Um, this is elementary, and I know that you know this, but I, I want to do it anyway. Um, we know, all of us, and, and those at home, and even the boys and girls, you can check if you knew this, that there is a lot of harmony in the gospel accounts of Jesus' death. That's a really elementary thing and an obvious thing to say, isn't it? A lot of harmony. So a lot of the events that Mark records about the cross, you read in Matthew, you read in Luke, and there's a lot of crossover, overlap, there's a lot of harmony. We know that, do we? We all know that. The kids know that. If you didn't know that, you do now. So I need to establish the fact that there is one event at the cross the only Matthew records, only Matthew records this event. And so naturally, 
this is the, this is the, the last thing that I want us to consider uh, together. But I want us to just kind of walk gradually towards the event. Okay, there's a kind of sequence of events that lead up to it. So can I ask you to do with me? Can you just all make sure that you've got a copy of this in front of you? If you, if you go to the end of verse 51, we'll walk through the text and I'll just point out one or two things. So if you, you all got it at home, we can't check up on you, but we're going to trust that you've, you've, you've got scripture in front of you. So the one or two events just to mention. So the first one is the end of verse 51. What do you see? So I think I've got the references here. You've got an earthquake. And that's something even to think about. So Jesus breathes his last and the ground shakes. And what do we know about that event from Scripture? Well, that that's something that signifies not just the presence of God, but that very often in Scripture is an indicator of the very judgment of God. So the earth shakes. Now, read on with me, because we're going to keep going through. So the same verse, the next thing that we're told about is that the rocks split. Now, if I were to ask you what you think about that, I'm guessing some of you might say, but that's like, that's Matthew kind of adding color to the earthquake, you know, just, you know, a bit more detail. There was an earthquake and the, and the rock split. No. I think what's happening there is that Matthew has Zechariah chapter 14 in mind and in view. Now, we've looked at that before, a couple of years ago. Maybe some of you will remember. That's an Old Testament prophecy, hundreds of years beforehand. And it's a prophecy of a time where God would come to Jerusalem. He would act in Jerusalem one day, and he would act to split the rocks. So I think that is what Matthew has in view there. It's not just incidental. Then keep going with me. Will you keep going? We're nearly at the event. So verse 52, we're then told, so earthquake, rock split. Next thing, the tombs of the dead broke open. Now think of it. These above ground tombs, the graves were open by this earthquake at this point. And then we get there. We arrive at the detail. Do you see verse 53? Because the tombs of the dead break open. And then, <laughs> lo and behold, many saints, some of the people of God, rise from the dead. And where do they go? Look what Matthew says. They rise from the dead and they go to Jerusalem. Ah, but that's not what he says. They go to the holy city. Now, come on, people. This is amazing, isn't it? To consider people rising from the dead at the completion of Jesus' work here. And it is clearly symbolic. Everyone sees that. So what? Why does that happen? Like why at the completion of Christ's work are, are the people who rise from the dead? Again, I want to give you two answers to this. The first is this. They rise from the dead by way of revelation of identity. Revelation. Now, you maybe say, well, what is he talking about? <coughs> Excuse me. Let me make it clear. If I or the Kirk Session um, in this place just now, if we were to survey you, I would love to have done this. Um, maybe it can be done in the future. Um, if we were to survey all of the people in the congregation, we asked you, what, by, what book of the Bible do you know, do you think you know least 
I wonder what you would say. I wonder, I wonder what answers would come out of London City Presbyterian Church. What book of the Bible would go least? Hopefully it's not First Corinthians. Hopefully it's not uh, Numbers or Jude or one of the books that we've studied in the recent past. That would be embarrassing for us. Um, what do you think would be there? Do you know what I'm guessing? It's just a total speculation. I reckon near the top is going to be the book of Ezekiel. Am I right? I wonder if I'm right. I don't think that's a book that, that is familiar to many sort of modern-day Christians. Is it the book of Ezekiel? But even when I say that to you, I know that there is a portion of Ezekiel that probably everybody in the room, if they don't know it in detail, they've heard about it. One, do you know where I'm going? Dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones. Do we know? Yeah. There's that portion of scripture in Ezekiel 37, isn't there? We are in the valley of dry bones. What happens? Do you know it? God acts and he brings the bones together. But that's not all. He fashions bodies. He brings sinews and tissue and tendons and flesh. And he raises up a people, doesn't he? An, an army breathes life. He breathes the spirit into these people. And then they go forth. Do, do we know that portion of scripture? If we do not know that portion of scripture, you know what you're doing this afternoon. You can go and read Ezekiel chapter 37. But then you think about it and you realize, don't you? So what you've got in your hands right now is at least a partial fulfillment of one of the greatest of Old Testament prophecies. Isn't that right? As Matthew tells you of not just skeletons and not just bones, but of these bodies coming out of the graves. Are not these words fulfilled when Ezekiel has God say, one day I will open your graves. And on that day, I will raise you from your graves, O oh my people. Do you see it? At least a partial fulfillment of this grand, majestic Old Testament prophecy. Now, that's great, I think. And it's exciting to put the pieces of that jigsaw together. But you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful to make sure you grasp what Ezekiel says about the purpose of that event. He says this. That one day God would raise saints from their tombs, from the grave. Why? To reveal identity. To do this so that Israel will know that it is the Lord. To know that I am the Lord. Friends, do you see it? Why is it in Matthew chapter 27, God raises these people? Why do they go into the holy city? Don't you see? They go into Jerusalem. They appear to other people because this is God the Father bearing witness to his work. This is God the Father bearing witness to the identity of the one who is in the, on the cross. That this one at Calvary is no mere victim. This one at Calvary is no mere criminal or thief like the others. No, we see as these saints are raised, the one on the cross is the Lord. That the blood that flowed from the side of the Lord Jesus Christ. That blood on the ground at Golgotha was the very blood of God spilt to obtain the church of Jesus Christ. So we see in the saints rising a revelation. But I said two things. This is where we, we go to conclude. 
These saints were raised as an illustration for you. And when I'm at home, I, I am not sure what things I've said to you and what things I've not said to you over the years. So, you, you know, forgive me if I've said this to you before. But at home, when um, I'm preparing to preach to you and go, trying to write a sermon, one of, there are loads of processes that we go through when we're trying to write a sermon. One thing that I try and do is I try and actually physically write down the questions that I have of a text let me, can you see why I would do that? Like, it's a great way of, like, pulling on the anchor, pulling on the handbrake, slowing me down so that I have to really analyze the text and really try and work out what's happening. So I ask, a, you know, I write down any question I might have. Sometimes there's no questions, sometimes there's lots. In eight and a half years, <laughs> I don't think there's been a text in all of, all of the hundreds of texts we've looked at I don't think there's been a text that has raised so many questions for me and maybe for you. All we are told is that some of the saints at the completion of Christ were at some of the saints rose. <laughs> Do you not have questions about that? Who are they? How, how many were they? Why were not all the saints raised in a sense? Did rise? What sort of bodies did they have, right? Was it glorified bodies? Did they, were they resurrected? like Lazarus to go and die again or not if not where did it go you know there's so many questions and I've got to reconcile myself I'm gonna have to wait till I get to heaven before I have those questions answered okay be patient I get it there is one question however that is probably most critical and it's a question we can't answer and I want to put it to you just to see if you're there and if you can get the, the reasoning behind the question. Will you, will you listen to the question? Here it is. Why does Matthew mention the raising of the saints here? Do you get it? There's a penny drop. Like surely you, you, you see the sequence of events. Do you? Did you pick up on the sequence of events? Christ breathes his last on the cross. What happens? Earthquake. Rocks split. Next thing. Tombs break open. But then there's a gap. Did you notice it? Then Matthew is looking ahead. And you have to understand the sequence of events is that though the tomb split open at the cross, it is not until Jesus himself has been raised on the Sunday... It is not until he has been raised as the first fruits, the firstborn of the resurrection of the dead. It is not until then that these other saints rise and go into Jerusalem. You get the secret of events. He actually tells you it's after the resurrection here. And so, therefore, do you see the question? Matthew, why do you record it here? Like, why do you not wait? It's only a chapter. It's only a few verses. Why do you not wait until Jesus' resurrection to tell us about these saints? Why record it at the cross? I wonder if you see it. Surely what's happening in the rising of these saints is God is illustrating, providing an illustration for you of the very purpose and the heart of Calvary, the very reason, in a sense, that Jesus Christ died this is an illustration, surely, of what Christ aimed to do achieved. That he died to defeat death. 
all of his people. That's why we're, that's why it's recorded here. That's why it's shown to us here that Christ Jesus died. Why? The purpose of death, to bear the curse of the law. You think about Hebrews 2, it's amazing. Listen. The author of Hebrews says, we're thinking like, why the cross? And he says, he partook of that. The cross. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That we think of it so often that Christ died to bear our sin. And yes, and hallelujah for that. But he did that, that we might live. That we might live in full knowledge and understanding and relationship with God. And how does Calvin put it? You know, we asked John Calvin, why the saints here? Why not chapter 28? John Calvin comes back at us and he says, so that you would know that Christ did not die just to be shut up in death. No, Matthew shows you these risen saints that you might know that he died to enter death to bring forth all of his people who are held captive by death. And I firmly believe that should be marvelous in your sight if you're a Christian. Isn't it? Do you understand? Like we can think of this as a cold, snowy, boring, February day. Do you realize what God is doing right now? He's giving you in his word a window into what awaits for you if you're a Christian. A window into your future. Consider the saints. What happens to them? Like them, you will rise bodily, not just a spirit, not just bones, but glorified bodies. And like them, where are you set to go? The people of God, we rise to enter the holy city. We enter the new Jerusalem, secured by the cross and by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, if you're a Christian, are you still scared of dying? Are you still scared of death? Has this pandemic, has your age, has your health brought your mortality into focus like never before? Surely this morning in God's word, you see what you need to do. For the rest of your days on this earth, you need to keep returning to the soil at Golgotha. You need to keep coming back to focus on this event. You need to keep for every day that you have left focusing on your Savior because surely you see that it's only at Calvary, here and here alone, where you see comfort in the face of death. These saints rose at the culmination of Christ's work and they did to show you even this morning what awaits for all, for all who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going to have to forgive me because you, you maybe want me to be quiet. But for every other Sunday that I can remember in this ministry, we end by appealing uh, to people who do not know Jesus Christ to put their trust in Jesus. And so, it would be remiss, wouldn't it? Not to do that just now. And maybe that's you. And, and maybe you're listening online, maybe you're in the room and you 
are not born again and you know I do not have a saving relationship with, 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 with Christ, then I would hope this morning that in this portion of Scripture, the first thing that you realize is your, your desperate predicament. Because who is raised? Who's raised? It's not all people. It's not all persons are raised to life by the work of Christ. It's the saints. It's those who have trusted in God and his salvation. They are raised to enjoy life. Do you see your predicament? And if you see your predicament, you know your sin. You're maybe sitting there thinking, but what do I do? How do I respond? And I think genuinely in his grace, God shows you here. Because there's this Roman centurion, isn't there? And he's with his eyes, he sees the earth shake. He sees the tomb split, the rocks split open. And what does he do? How does he respond? Now remember, he's not got a religious bone in his body. You know, a sinner, a Gentile, a pagan. But how does he respond? He cries out. And surely if you're not a Christian, you see that that is what you need to do at this very moment, at this very hour, at this very minute. You need not just to cry out off Christ, but to cry out to Christ in prayer, to ask God to forgive you for your sin, to cry out in repentance and belief. And if you do that, then I can assure you of this. If you come to Christ the temple, then by the grace of God, you will this hour be brought across the threshold. You will be at this hour brought by the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, brought past the cherubim, and you will be brought into a saving, safe, forgiven, intimate, loving relationship with this God the God of all grace. Surely even you recognize good news. Good news. I urge you, will you not now believe, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's bow and let's pray. Lord, it is amazing in our sight to consider the gospel. It is amazing to linger on the fact that it is not by us, none of our works, none of our efforts. It is not by our merit. You have done it all for us. You have provided the lamb, the life. You have provided the sacrifice. And so just now we worship you. We praise you for Jesus. And we plead with you to save sinners from that second death. And we pray all for your name and for your glory. Amen.